The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hey folks, it's almost Valentine's Day, and what better way to celebrate than to immerse yourself in one of the greatest love stories ever written? Especially if you're like me and you like your love stories tinged with some despair and some doom. Did I say tinged? I meant suffused. That's right, I'm talking about Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. And now you can get an audiobook of Madame Bovary for free. Compliments of our sponsor, Audible. Just head over to audibletrial.com slash HOL for a 30-day free trial and a free copy of Madame Bovary. Or you can pick from one of the other titles. There are over 180,000 books to choose from, all for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Listen to a great poet, Ezra Pound, read one of his poems. Oh, here he comes. For three years out of key with his time... He strove to resuscitate the dead art of poetry, to maintain the sublime in the old sense. Wrong from the start. That's Ezra Pound. We're listening to him reading his semi-autobiographical poem, Hugh Selwyn Moberly. There's one line that we're waiting for. One line. Wait for it. Okay. Okay, here it comes. Here it comes. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Let's listen to it again. His true Penelope was Flaubert. His true Penelope was Flaubert. Hmm. Okay, let's leave. Mr. Pound and the lecture hall and his audience and talk about that line. His true Penelope was Flaubert. That line sent me on a journey, a deep journey into the world of literature, which coincided with an actual journey that I was taking, a physical journey, which also coincided with a life journey, and which all got all meshed up with our novel today, Madame Bovary. It's like a a literary blender. A literary cocktail. I have several stories to tell today, and each story has several endings. But we'll separate the strands, and we'll dig into one of the world's greatest literary masterpieces along the way. Here we go, with the classic French novel, Madame Bovary, by Gustave Flaubert. I'm Jack Wilson, by the way. Welcome to the podcast, historyofliterature.com. Facebook.com slash History of Literature. So, here's a brief sketch of my own history with literature. Big reader as a kid, 
big reader in high school, big reader in college, but completely unformed. No direction, no focus, no context, no understanding, or barely an understanding. I understood the books, but I didn't really understand literature, if that makes sense. I didn't see patterns. I didn't see how things fit. Then at college, with Mike Palindrome and others, I started to look for influences, connections, inspirations, homage, styles, schools, that kind of thing. I was fascinated by stories and narrative and how it all worked. How did art work? That fascinated me too, not just in literature, other disciplines as well. The story of art, the story of architecture. I loved books like that. In literature, I wanted to know how it all hung together. What came first and what came after? And how did any of this happen? When a writer sat down with a pen, how did he or she know what to do? How to make general stories into art? What made one novel so much richer than another? Who figured this out? Flaubert is enormous in this story. Maybe the most influential novelist who ever lived. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a bit. So anyway, there I am in college reading away with Mike. Think of this, think of it like bands, like music. You might love a song you hear on the radio and someone gives you an album. This was the 80s and 90s I'm talking about, so there were still albums. And then maybe you'd read some interviews, maybe some liner notes or some music criticism. You develop a few heroes and you start to see the bands that influenced your heroes. They tell you about them in these interviews. Some of the names you might know, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, maybe you go check them out again, see if you can detect the source of the influence and how it played out in your favorite band. And some names that you hear, some you might not know. Velvet Underground, the Sex Pistols. You have to go back and check them out. Might be different for you. My roommate was really into Fugazi, and suddenly it was, hey, Black Flag. Or the Rolling Stones might point you toward Muddy Waters. Or if you're younger, maybe you're into Bruno Mars. Well, my young friend, let me introduce you to the police and Prince and Michael Jackson. The point is, you fall in love with someone, so you start tracing back, looking for the source where did that river start flowing? Here's another one for people my age. The band. The band is a great example of a band that influenced everyone that came after. I was just watching The Last Waltz again. Man, it's had a good movie. Martin Scorsese's documentary of the final concert given by the band. Here's why I watched it. I ran across an old story about Eric Clapton. Not sure I've ever heard this before. Eric Clapton was in Cream, a supergroup, and they were hugely successful with hit after hit after hit, sold-out show after sold-out show, successful by any measure. And Eric Clapton, in the midst of all that success, heard an album by the band. It was the Music from Big Pink album. And suddenly, Cream was over. That was it. One album, and Clapton knew, listening to it, that he couldn't stay in Cream anymore. Why not? Well, Cream was all about big solos 
the sizzling hot solos of his own guitar playing and Ginger Baker on drums and Jack Bruce. And that wasn't the music that Clapton wanted to make anymore. The songs by the band were not about individuals trading off solos, as technically dazzling as those solos might have been in the hands of someone like Clapton. The band was about the songs. There was room to breathe in those songs. There was restraint. And there was a spirit that wasn't coming through with cream. And that's what Clapton wanted to do next. Locate that spirit. Tap into that spirit. Well, when you read a story that's that dramatic, makes you want to listen to the band, doesn't it? To see what was missing in cream. That's what it was like for me in those years. You'd read Fitzgerald, and then you'd hear that his great friend and rival was Hemingway, so you'd read Hemingway. Suddenly you have two very different styles to compare against one another, so you read more about the group they traveled in, and Gertrude Stein and Ezra Pound, and now you have all these new connections to explore, new people to read. What were they up to? How was Hemingway different from any of them? This was me for about ten years, tracing things back. Here's Fitzgerald's great mentor in college, his contemporary, but someone whose judgment he deferred to all his life, Edmund Wilson. Interesting critic, aspiring novelist, and boy, Wilson got in a feud with Vladimir Nabokov. Oh right, the Lolita guy. So you start reading him as well. Wow, he couldn't be more different from Hemingway. Complete opposites, those two. Nabokov and Hemingway, and you read somewhere that Hemingway really traces his origins back to Flaubert. And then you read somewhere else that Nabokov really traces his origins back to Flaubert. Whoa. Whoa. And then here's Pound. His true Penelope was Flaubert. What's going on here? What does that mean? Penelope is the wife that Odysseus leaves behind. She's the rock, the anchor, the one that Odysseus is trying to return to. She's courted by many would-be lovers while Odysseus is gone on his long quest. She turns them all down. She is, for Pound, the symbol of the faithful, the unwavering, the devoted. That's who Flaubert is for all those writers who came after the one devoted, more than any other novelist, to getting it right. The one devoted to perfection and to style. Dorothy Parker, in her inimitable way, put it as, quote, And there was that poor sucker Flaubert rolling around on his floor for three days looking for the right word. End quote. That's, cl- <laughs> That's classic Dorothy Parker. I think it made our list of top ten Dorothy Parker sayings. Check out that episode. But that was the symbol. The agony of Flaubert writing. That's what he stood for for so many writers. His devotion to perfection was the model for everyone who came after. I'm putting an asterisk at the end of that sentence. Actually, a double asterisk. But let's spend some time understanding Flaubert's devotion first. Madame Bovary was his second effort at a novel. His first... The Temptation of St. Anthony was another labor of love. Maybe the, maybe the book Flaubert cared about the most. 
the temptation of St. Anthony. He wrote and wrote and wrote. Then he forced two friends to listen to him read it aloud. It took four days, and Flaubert demanded that they simply listen without comment for four days as he read his manuscript. And then he finally finished reading aloud, and his friends told him that he should throw it on the fire. (laughs) What a moment that must have been. I'm surprised Flaubert wasn't convicted on a double homicide after that. Literature would have been totally different had that happened. But no, Flaubert went forth. He set the temptation of St. Anthony aside, which he, he returned to it years later when he brought it out in a different form. But instead, at age 30, he began writing a story of a woman married to a provincial doctor. Flaubert's own father was a provincial doctor, by the way. But this story was the story of an imaginative woman, a woman who reads many popular novels and who develops a taste for the finer things, but who is married to a dull, well-meaning, mediocre doctor, and who, in her longing to be part of a different life, eventually enters into an affair and then another affair. I won't spoil the ending, except to say that This is the thrust of the book. Will she find happiness in these illicit affairs? Will she escape misery? Learn a kind of contentment? Or will her romantic longing prove to be her downfall? Flaubert frames her condition with a sentence so marvelous that it belongs on every writer's wall. Framed. Quote, She wanted to die but she also wanted to live in Paris, end quote. Isn't that fantastic? She wanted to die, but she also wanted to live in Paris. As a statement of Emma Bovary's soul, it's simply perfection. Now, I said I was going to talk about Flaubert's devotion to his craft. It's this. He crafts perfect sentences, sentences with details, perfectly chosen details that perfectly set the scene. His eye is the eye of a movie camera, scanning from the flower in the buttonhole of a man sitting in a suit on a balcony, down to a cafe where the newspaper ruffles underneath a saucer, to a priest, hastening across the square, late for an appointment with a woman who every year thinks she's going to die, always in the final week of February. I made those details up. They're not from Flaubert, but you get the idea. Here's an actual example from Flaubert. Quote, He ran all the way to the Quai Voltaire. An old man in his shirt sleeves was weeping at an open window, his eyes raised towards the sky. The Seine was flowing peacefully by. The sky was blue. Birds were singing in the Tuileries. Chosen detail, chosen detail, chosen detail. The world is painted in a sweep. And this goes on, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, brick by brick. The author tries to get out of the way. That's Flaubert's goal, not to judge, not to emote, not to tell. Just present these details, stay out of the way, don't leave fingerprints. And oh, how he labored to get these right. Last week I spent five days writing one page he wrote in a letter, and I dropped everything else for it. I gave myself up to it entirely. 
In another letter, he tells of the judgments of those around him. Your mania for sentences, my mother said, has dried up your heart. But this was paramount to him. Style. Style. He wanted to write a book about the color gray, he said, or a book about nothing. The style itself would propel the narrative forward. But only if it's perfect. And style means perfection of language, too. The sound and the rhythms. Here's a nice quote of his from Madame Bovary. Human speech is like a cracked kettle on which we tap crude rhythms for bears to dance to while we long to make music that will melt the stars. In Madame Bovary, he wanted his prose to melt the stars. Thank God he didn't actually write a book about nothing. That would have been his style pushed to an extreme, a kind of Finnegan's Wake, a Flaubert's Finnegan's Wake that would be unreadable. Instead, we have this style applied to a beautiful story of a woman who wanted to die, but who also wanted to live in Paris. Madame Bovary caused a scandal. There was an obscenity trial. But readers adored it, especially those readers who also wanted to be writers. So, here's where I insert myself into the story. Back to me in my early 20s, trying to draw all these connections, aware of Flaubert as an influence. I'd read around Flaubert. I'd read Hemingway and Pound. I'd read some Proust. I'd read Nabokov. I'd read... Julian Barnes's book, Flaubert's Parrot, everyone talking about Flaubert. And I had never read Madame Bovary. It's been on my list forever, but I had never gotten to it. I'm fascinated by the idea. I can't wait to, to dig into Flaubert someday. So there I am in Taiwan, living alone, reading novels, learning Chinese, and I don't know, trying to figure things out, I suppose. I'm writing letters to my friends from college. No email in those days. No internet. No cell phones. So I would write a letter. It takes a week. A week to get anywhere. Another week or two for my friend to get around to writing a response. And then a week for that letter to get sent back. It'd be a month round trip. I can't figure out an address for a month. I, I was moving around so much especially when I started traveling. So people would send the letters to Poste Restante. That still exists. You go to the main post office in whatever city you're, you're visiting, ask for letters in your name, and pick them up there. I feel like I'm describing the act of sketching figures with charcoal on the wall of a cave. But that's how it worked. I remember one of my students in Taiwan, an elementary school teacher named Bill, I was writing a letter to a friend of mine who was in the Peace Corps. I'll respect her privacy and not give her real name, but in the spirit of today's show, I'll call her Emma. Emma was in northern Africa in Morocco, and the letters that I wrote took weeks and months before I'd hear back. I wrote one out. I wasn't thrilled with it, so I was rewriting it, copying it over onto a new piece of stationery. My letter to Emma. And Bill saw me doing this, and he said, Are you in love with her? <laughs> I was shocked. No, I said. We're just friends. She has a boyfriend, in fact. And he said, You're writing a rough draft 
of a letter and copying it to make sure it's perfect, you're in love. Jack Wilson, I see you doing that. You're in love. I should have just said I was I was a Flaubert in training, but I had not yet read Flaubert. And anyway, if things weren't plain enough, Emma never wrote to me again. All those months left in Taiwan and nothing from Emma. Ah, oh, well. Say lovey. I had other things I had to get done anyway. Places to see and books to read. I had developed a plan to save up money in Taiwan, then travel around the world by land and sea, surface only. And so I set out. A flight to Hong Kong would be the last flight I would take for months and maybe years. Everything else would just be surface travel. So I get my fill of Hong Kong and take a boat to Shanghai. And the boat is kind of like a cruise ship, like the oldest cruise ship you've ever seen, probably built in the 20s or 30s, with a swimming pool so scummy that not even the kids will swim in it. So I head to the ship's library, and it has two books in English, a translation of Chairman Mao's Little Red Book, and a translation of the selected poems of Chairman Mao. And bam, suddenly forced to face what it will mean to live without easy access to books. All I have is a backpack, and weight is a concern because I'm walking everywhere and it's very hot. I can only carry a book or two at a time. And so, what do you do in that situation? You start trading with other travelers, swapping books, and stopping at bookstores when you can. And each selection is very precious. You have to find something sustaining. It's like the opposite of beach reads. It's not a throwaway. It must be very nourishing. You don't want your mind switched off. You need something to really absorb you when you're trying to handle the days on the ship or the 20-hour train ride to Beijing or the days and days it takes to cross China when you're headed west. Because I was headed for Tibet and I had no idea how many books I'd be able to buy there. But I knew I would have a lot of time. I'm not talking about a couple of hours waiting in an airport. I'm talking about weeks and months. A lot of time to fill. Now, in Tibet, a lot of it you can fill just by gazing at the world around you. Because Tibet is spectacular. You can spend a lot, of, a lot more time talking to Tibetans, the most wonderful people on earth, or with other travelers who have the most incredible stories you've ever heard. But still, there comes a time when you're alone in your tent or in your room with a candle or bouncing along on the back of a truck. There comes a time when you want to pull something out, some pages to help you get through the hours. I met a man who was reading 100 Years of Solitude. He didn't want to trade me for the volume of Proust that I had but he did want to read Dostoevsky. So I traded him Crime and Punishment for his Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Two days later, he did trade me. For the Proust, his Middlemarch. He had run dry, and he needed something new. That's what it was like. It was awesome. And then, way out in western China, just on the verge of taking the long ride to Tibet, there was no train in those days, and travel was forbidden. So I would be stowing away on the back of a bus. 
I found a bookstore that had about 10 books. 10 books in English, I mean. Mostly Dickens. Dickens was allowed in Mao's China. I guess it was Deng's China at that point. Still carried the shadow of Mao. Dickens was allowed because he exposed capitalism and the bourgeois lifestyle. That's how I, that was my interpretation anyway. All the poor houses, the orphanages, all that made good propaganda for the regime. And there it was. Madame Bovary. Of course I bought it. I tucked it into my backpack. Couldn't wait to get started. So as I crossed into Tibet and Lhasa, I read Great Expectations, saving Madame Bovary. And then I spent some time in Lhasa, finishing up something else, another Proust, I think. I think I sold that before I departed. That was a big volume. Had to lighten the load. I traveled as far as I could on the Friendship Highway toward Nepal with a lot of other travelers. I wasn't yet completely alone. But I wanted to go into truly forbidden territory. The trip to the holiest mountain in Asia, Mount Kailas, way in the remotest western, westernmost part of Tibet. Sometime I'll tell the story of my trip to Mount Kailas. It's the most incredible place you can imagine. But this story is about my journey. Because I bribed my way under the back of a truck, some kind of supply truck. And there was a driver and an assistant. And the three of us took off into the middle of nowhere. With them in the cab and me riding by myself, bouncing along on the back of this truck, headed off across the barren scree of Tibet. Our altitude was something like ten or 12,000 feet there on the Tibetan plain. And in that altitude, the oxygen is, is light. And the sunlight does weird things as it passes through the air. You see things you would only see if you were on drugs. I saw an entire field of rainbows, columns of rainbows crisscrossing and shooting up into the sky. In Tibet, all the colors are crisper, more distinct, brighter, more vivid. Every sensation is heightened. Every breath feels like you've jumped naked into a cold pool and reemerged, newly awake. There it is, just the three of us. They're obviously something like bandits. <laughs> They're willing to break the law for a few extra bucks to have me ride along. I wouldn't trust them with my wallet. I think they probably did rifle through my stuff at one point or another. But they were friendly. And we were all kind of in it together, this adventure. And we didn't see another truck for days. Because you're not really on a road, you're just pointed in a direction driving across this vast, empty plain. And then our truck broke down in the middle of nowhere. No signs of human life in any direction as far as we could see. So what are we doing? What do we do then? We wait, just hoping that someone will travel by. Wait with our truck that doesn't work. One point we burned the spare tire, cooked some instant noodles over the flame. I had some army biscuits that sustained us for a while. We started rationing out our food. I had a jar of peaches. It wasn't much, 
they didn't seem to have much more. There was a point where I thought I was going to die. I wrote a long letter to my sister. I was not sure if she would ever get it. I thought I should write it anyway. And then I had to figure out how to spend my time. One could sleep. One could walk to a gorgeous small lake. Wasn't too far from the truck. Walk there and just stare at the ice blue water, which was entrancing in its color. Just out here. The lake just sitting here, the most beautiful lake I've ever seen, just sitting there with no one to look at it. What else could I do? I could scream at the heavens, but no one would hear. I never did that. I was completely calm. I was at peace. I wished that things had ended differently for me, but I was also not in the mood to complain. I was in Shangri-La. It's a lucky thing to be there even if you have an unlucky outcome. And I had my book, Madame Bovary. I read it. I absorbed myself in this story of this trapped, beautiful spirit, Emma Bovary, millions and millions of lifetimes away from the one I was living. And I finished that beautiful book, read the last sentence, and turned back to the first page and started reading again. I was in love with something. Felt like love. In love with her, maybe. Or with the prose. And with the spirit of Gustave Flaubert, who had written the prose, who had written it for the world, and for me. And I was in love with the world. I was in love with life. I read the book again and again. And then... After several days, when our food supply had dwindled to hardly anything, my driver finally undid some ropes and ripped off the canvas that I had been riding on and sleeping on. And I saw what cargo we were carrying, the cargo that I had been riding on for all that time without knowing what I was riding on. It turns out I, was, I had been sitting on top of crates and crates of Pabst Blue Ribbon. And we all slaked our thirst with the best-tasting beer that I had ever had. And I wondered if you could survive on beer alone. The nutrients that come within beer. And for how many days. And I read Madame Bovary again. And I was happy. I was content. I was locked in. I was in a kind of paradise. Time was completely suspended. Henry James says, quote, Madame Bovary has a perfection that not only stamps it, but that makes it stand almost alone. It holds itself with such a supreme, unapproachable assurance as both excites and defies judgment. End quote. It was the perfect book for me, there among that supreme natural beauty, up above the rest of the world, with only soaring mountains and crystalline lakes and drifting puffy clouds as my companions. My gaze would drift from the gorgeous scenery to the page and back to the gorgeous scenery, and I felt like my mind had ascended into heaven. I doubt I'll ever have a love affair with a book the way I had 
an affair with Madame Bovary. I feel in some ways like the book saved me. It kept me sane, kept me company, gave me everything I had. It's a strange thing to think that, but it was a strange period in my life. Eventually, another truck happened to spot us from way off in the horizon. It was like a a ship on the ocean. It's like a little dot. We waved and waved, hoped that it would somehow see us. And it did. It turned toward us, and it got bigger and bigger. And I made it out alive. I did the holy pilgrimage to Kyla's. Did the, the circuit walking around the mountain, cleansing oneself. And I parted with my copy of Madame Bovary reluctantly, eventually. Another traveler was headed across the plain, and he needed it more than I. So, what do we see in Bovary? How can it spawn a headline like this essay from James Wood? Quote, How Flaubert Changed Literature Forever. End quote. One way is the example of Flaubert himself, his monkish devotion to getting the novel right, set a standard. No longer would it be enough to be a garrulous storyteller like Dickens, a contemporary of Flaubert's. Dickens dashing off hundreds of pages in a a brief spurt of time. Well, actually, that kind of author still exists. There are plenty of John Irvings out there, and they're doing quite well. But there's a new model now. Slavish agony over getting the right word. A prose writer taking the care of a poet to perfect the prose in a novel. From Flaubert to Joyce to many who came after. Spend an hour on a word. Even Raymond Carver, simple and unadorned, the language of a truck driver, will tell us that He spends an afternoon taking commas out of his short story and then putting them back in. Working hard, taking care. That's one way. But how do we get from Flaubert to Hemingway, so famous for his simple and direct style, and from Flaubert to Nabokov, one of the most ornate aesthetic writers we've had? Nabokov's a little easier to see. He wrote Lolita sentence by sentence on note cards, he took care. He pushed Flaubert further into deeper pyrotechnical sentences. And some might say he pushed things too far now and then. We could point to examples of sentences that look grandiose for their own sake, rather than in service of the story. But still, he's following Flaubert's lead, building his narrative choice by choice, word by word, detail by detail, laboring to get things just right squeezing each moment for maximum effect, thinking about the sound and the rhythm of the prose as much as the substance of it. But what about Hemingway and his short, direct sentences? Well, after Flaubert, even someone who writes in a plain style like Hemingway's is making choices too. He's choosing not to be as ornate as Flaubert. But more than that, he and So many other novelists, from high artists to thriller writers, are following Flaubert's technique of prose as a camera's eye. There is no truth, Flaubert once said. There is only perception. Trying to present details without judgment, that was what Flaubert agonized over. 
Here's another quote of his, the famous one about the writing a book about nothing. Quote, What strikes me as beautiful, what I would like to create is a book about nothing, a book without external attachments, held aloft by the internal force of its style. End quote. Hemingway wanted his fiction to be about something. Most people do. Even Flaubert himself actually did give the novel Madame Bovary a plot and characters and themes and ideas. But that phrase, the internal force of its style, that's a very Hemingway-esque view. It's a view that prose writers, suddenly given, exam- suddenly given the example of Flaubert, of writing prose as sharp as poetry, it's a view that they've held from Flaubert all the way to the present. The novel can do everything. That's the view that was handed to Flaubert. And you can see it in writers of his age, like Melville. Novels can philosophize, satirize, present, depict. They can go deep. They can also stay shallow. They can portray. They can imitate life. They can go into flights of incredible fancy. There are no limits to a novel and what it can get done artistically. And here's what makes it a novel and not a long story told by a storyteller. The concision of phrases, the choices of detail that show the reader a world. And by showing with an internal force of the style, can convey and convey persuasively things that the reader might not accept if the narrative was limited to just telling, to just grabbing the reader by the collar, trying to talk at him. Here's a line of Flaubert. The smoke of a moving railway engine is, quote, stretched out in a horizontal line like a gigantic ostrich feather whose lip kept blowing away, end quote. That's beautiful. A little heightened, a poetic turn. Nabokov and Updike and Martin Amos and a thousand others will seek to generate sentences like that and push them even farther. Here's another sentence from Flaubert. Listen to how the camera eye creates the scene. Quote, At the back of deserted cafes, women behind the bars yawned between their untouched bottles. The newspapers lay unopened on the reading room tables. In the laundress's workshops, the washing quivered in the warm air. Every now and then he stopped at a bookseller's stall. An omnibus coming down the street and grazing the pavement made him turn round, and when he reached the Luxembourg, he retraced his steps. End quote. There are hints of this kind of style in Austin and Balzac, even all the way back to Daniel Defoe. You can find traces of it. Flaubert makes it paramount, this withdrawal of the author. Here's a passage from Hemingway from a story I chose at random called The Capital of the World. Now, Hemingway, we know, wrote and rewrote to get things right. Famously, he wrote the end of A Farewell to Arms 39 times, and some now say 47. They've found 47 different drafts of the ending of A Farewell to Arms. He said he was trying to get the words right. Listen to this style of this paragraph from The Capital of the World, and you'll see how Flaubert's influence carried through in more than just complete devotion to the craft and the rhythm, but in the way the details are chosen and presented in a kind of non-judgmental way. Here's the quote. The auctioneer stood on the street corner talking with friends. The tall waiter was at the anarcho-syndicalist meeting 
waiting for an opportunity to speak. The middle-aged waiter was seated on the terrace of the Café Alvarez, drinking a small beer. The woman who owned the Luarca was already asleep in her bed, where she lay on her back with the bolster between her legs, big, fat, honest, clean, easygoing, very religious, and never having ceased to miss or pray daily for her husband, dead now twenty years. In his room alone, the matador who was ill lay face down on his bed with his mouth against a handkerchief. You see that sweep? What is that getting done? These aren't characters we know. They're not important to the story. But it's details about the world of the story. It's creating a reality, a a plausibility that affects us in some way so that we're ready for the narrative when it comes. In Madame Bovary, Flaubert's masterpiece, he selects these details and conveys them with such internal force to the prose that novelists were forever in his debt and perhaps in his shadow. So, that was my love affair, my great love affair with Tibet and with Madame Bovary, the novel. And I exhausted my time in Tibet and descended into Nepal and Kathmandu to recover. And there, the Kathmandu post office, at the post-arrestant window, I was shocked to find a letter from her, from Emma. Emma in Morocco. She apologized for not having written before. She had been having an adventure of her own, which she told me all about in the letter. And suddenly, I didn't want to be in Kathmandu. I wanted to see Emma, way across the world in Morocco, where she was teaching literature at a university, talking about the scarlet letter to a lecture hall full of Moroccan students, eager to learn. She was a vagabond spirit, just like me, in love with literature, just like me. Kathmandu was incredible, but after Tibet, everything is a bit of a come down anyway. I did have a path forward, though, in a different direction. I could go to Morocco and talk to Emma. I could see what she thought about Flaubert. I went into a travel agency and asked about flights to Morocco. Morocco, said the agent. Is that a city? I guess it's not going to be a direct flight, I replied. And it was another adventure, this long journey on a Russian airline, traveling through... United Arab Emirates, and to Moscow, down to Spain, then on a bus, on a train. Even finding her in Morocco was not easy, and it only occurred due to a kind of miracle. Emma, I cried when I finally saw her on a stairway in an apartment building in an out-of-the-way Moroccan city. Hey, Jack, she said, completely unsurprised. As I learned later, she'd been expecting me to visit. It was just a matter of time. So, I can draw a line from Flaubert to Hemingway and from Flaubert to Nabokov. And in my own case, I can draw a line from Flaubert from reading Madame Bovary in Tibet, where I thought I might die, to a journey to Morocco to visit a friend. And how did that story end? Listener. I married her.
we go. Valentine's Day special. My thanks to Gustave Flaubert for giving us Madame Mowbray. Did he trap future novelists? Maybe. Maybe. Just as beautiful Madame Bovary was herself trapped and trying to get out, maybe future writers of fiction are trapped within the style and example of Flaubert. Who's going to break us out? Or maybe we just stay in happily, continuing our journey, knowing what novels can do and how. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Catch up with us on historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Or follow us on Twitter at WriterJack, that's J-A-C-K-E. Please rank us and rate us on iTunes and everywhere else you find your podcasts. Spread the good news. Maybe you have a special someone who would like to hear this story too. Maybe you could tell him or her about this podcast and this episode in particular. Maybe that's someone you yourself love. Or maybe it's someone you know who needs to be reminded that love is possible, even in this crazy and sometimes terrible, and also, at times, this very, very wonderful world. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.